Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. On view from December 13, 2015 through March 20, 2016, the exhibition Power and Pathos, Bronze Sculpture of the Hellenistic World, features 50 works that survey the development of Hellenistic art as it spread from Greece throughout the Mediterranean between the 4th and 1st centuries BC. Through the medium of bronze, artists were able to capture the dynamic realism, expression, and detail that characterized the new artistic goals of the period. The exhibition presents a unique opportunity to witness the importance of bronze in the ancient world when it became the preferred medium for portrait sculpture. In this lecture, recorded on March 3, 2016, Anthony Caldellis explains the role of Hellenistic art during the Byzantine era. For centuries, Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, was the largest and most impressive open-air museum of classical art in the world. To adorn their capital, emperors selected and imported the best surviving pieces of classical sculpture from the Aegean region. Caldellus explores the cosmic and imperial messages that their contemporary architectural arrangements conveyed before they were irretrievably lost in fires and wars. This program is coordinated with and supported by Dumbarton Oaks Research Library and Collection. It's a double pleasure to be here today, both the honor to uh, speaking at the National Gallery of Art and also um, the pleasure of reconnecting with the intellectual community at Dumbarton Oaks, which is the best in the world uh, for my field, uh, truly. I've, uh, two hours of conversation there are worth sometimes uh, years of, uh, of experience out in the field. Um, I am going to be talking today about the fate of ancient statuary, primarily bronzes, um, after antiquity and their life in the city of Constantinople. Uh, you can see one artist's impression of Constantinople there. Constantinople is a city that has largely vanished. Um, obviously, there's modern Istanbul, which is a wonderful and enormous modern city, and, and it's great to explore. But it's also very difficult to imagine how Byzantine Constantinople looked, especially in its early phases. So much of it has disappeared. And one of the projects that I've been working on um, in recent years is just trying to recapture that for myself, just in my imagination almost, to try to pull together the references that we have from texts and from archaeology and art history to um, recreate some of the spaces um, that, uh, that I'll be talking about um, today. Um, I realize I don't have my speech right now, so I'm going to pull up Marco Rubio here. <laughs> here we go. So when the end finally came and the cosmic order cycled around, the Greek gods departed quietly with both pathos, pathos and power, but more pathos, I will argue. There was no heroic last stand for them, no gathering of warriors in Valhalla to check the coming of night. They were instead evicted from their temples as if they had defaulted on mortgages. The temples were closed, they were left to decay, or they were taken over by new masters for different purposes. It was a little bit humiliating. What was an out-of-work god to do? In my hometown of Athens, the goddess Athena was evicted from her temple, the Parthenon, and she had to move in with the leader of her local cult. This was Proclus, the head of the Platonic Academy, and Athena, 
Athena, who had once dropped the island of Sicily on the giant Enceladus, was reduced to visiting Proclus in a dream, and his mansion was directly beneath the Acropolis. Uh, there was a house that was excavated there under the street that we conventionally called the House of Proclus. Get your house ready, she told him, for the mistress of Athens desires to live with you. This was in the 480s, toward the end of Proclus's long life. His biographer explains that all this happened when her statue was removed from the Parthenon by, quote, those who move even the immovable. A later medieval scribe wrote next to that passage in the manuscript, I think he means us Christians. <laughs> After they evicted her, these Christians turned her temple into a church for a different virgin, Maria, who now took her rival's place in the Naos. The east entrance of the Parthenon, from which the morning light had once poured in to bathe the golden ivory statue of the goddess, this was blocked off, and eventually it was covered with a mosaic of the mother of God, much like this one from Constantinople. Moreover, the Christians who converted the temple pressured Apollo to predict in an oracle that one day the Parthenon would be consecrated to the virgin mother of the word of God. They inscribed the text of this oracle on a huge stone, which they set directly by the entrance to make it known to all. And at Delphi, Apollo was even made to predict his own demise. As the story goes, the last pagan emperor, Julian, he sent one of his associates, this is the medical author, Orivasios, to Delphi to offer assistance in those dark times. Apollo responded, tell the emperor that my hall has fallen to the ground. Phoebus no longer has this house, nor mantic laurel, nor a prophetic spring. The water has dried up. And what of Olympian Zeus? He who had held the very lightning in his hands and burned giants with it. He had now not seduced a mortal woman in centuries. <laughs> Sacrifices in his honor were forbidden, and the Olympic games peered out in the early fifth century. As another Christian scribe wrote later, the Olympic Games lasted from the time of the Hebrew judges in the Old Testament to the reign of Theodosius II. So you see, the gods had now even ceased to mark time, the passage of eons. Those were now set by books of the Bible and reigns of the Roman emperors. Zeus's temple at Olympia collapsed soon afterward, and Olympia itself was deserted. Before that, Zeus's most famous statue, this was the golden ivory chryselephantine statue made by Phidias almost a century, uh, sorry, a thousand years before. This was the, they famously said about this that it sort of looked a little bit awkward because if he stood up from the throne, his head would go through the roof. <laughs> so this statue was moved to Constantinople and placed in a hall in the palace of the court eunuch named Lausus. This was like Zeus's retirement home. <laughs> you could go visit him. He probably liked to be visited, uh, especially by his favorite crowd, artists. There's a story about an artist in Constantinople in the mid-fifth century, right after this palace museum was built. This artist wanted to paint an image of the Christian god, and he made it in the likeness of Zeus. After all, why not? The father of gods and men was a perfect model of majesty. But no, after he did this, the painter's ha hand withered, and he had to be healed miraculously by the city's patriarch. So Zeus could be visited, but he couldn't really be let out, even in the form of an image. The historian who told this story added that, quote, 
The other type of image of Christ the Savior is the truer one, the one that has a short curly cut and isn't so hairy, end quote. So the early Byzantine world had not yet come around to the later look that we're familiar with. In Constantinople, Zeus at least enjoyed the company of his fellow gods and heroes. There were statues of them everywhere. But the power of these gods was so much reduced some of them had fallen to the level of uh, like C-list superheroes, left with only minor powers after all the good ones had been taken by the new god and his saints. So minor powers like, I don't know, like I would have the power of always being able to find my keys or something like that. <laughs> For example, a statue of Aphrodite standing on a column by the golden horn allegedly had the power to betray women who were not chaste. If they were virgins, or in the case of married women, <coughs> if they had committed adultery, um, if they had not committed adultery or were virgins, it would let them pass by without incident. But if they had been naughty, it would cause their skirts to fly up, <laughs> revealing the shame before all. One day the emperor's sister-in-law had it smashed up because it lifted her dress when she accidentally passed by on other business. <laughs> now this is probably a made up story, but it shows the role that statues of the gods played in the imagination of Byzantine Constantinople. Uh, this imagination could actually inspire very real, uh, concrete actions. In 1203, while the army of the Fourth Crusade was encamped outside the city, uh, this was just before that army, the Crusaders, took Constantinople and burned it. The people of Constantinople themselves preemptively destroyed a huge bronze statue of Athena that stood on a pedestal in the form of Constantine, uh, which form you see a, a digital reconstruction of here, and I think this is supposed to represent that statue. Now, it used to be believed by art historians that this was the Promachos herself, that is the statue of Athena that stood um, outside on the Acropolis in Athens with a raised spear. But we know now that it probably wasn't that one. It was a type that was similar to the one that you can see in the exhibition upstairs. Actually, there's a, one from Italy. Uh, nevertheless, this statue of Athena was described by a contemporary witness to its destruction as being 30 feet tall, made of bronze and her hand pointed to the south. This is Nikitas Koniatis, who was a high official of the empire and one of the best historians to ever write in Greek. But the foolish masses took her to be gesturing toward the west, uh, sort of beckoning the armies of the western, uh, uh, the western armies of the crusaders on and encouraging them to take the city. And so they destroyed her. No, you idiots, he wrote. Athena symbolizes courage and wisdom, and, and you're just spiting yourself here. Now this view of the gods and their statues as symbolizing abstract qualities and virtues was of course ancient. Um, it had been originate, introdu introduced by philosophers long before Christianity and it seems to have continued in the Christian empire. But note that the people had a more, let's say, magical view of the statue's powers. They believed in a kind of sympathetic affinity between it and the forces outside the city. This is a fairly common theme in the history of the ancient bronze statues in Constantinople. Let me give you another example, again from the Forum of Constantine. Uh, this is a space to which I will return and I'll, I'll devote the second half of the uh, presentation to. So in 1167, something funny happened on the way to the Forum. The Emperor Manuel Komnenos was on his way to march against Hungary. 
And there were two, at this point, there were two statues of female figures standing above the arch uh, into the, uh, or out of the forum, the Western Arch. And these two figures were called, one was called the Roman and the other was called the Hungarian. And at this moment, it, it just so happened that the Roman one fell down while the Hungarian one remained standing, which was interpreted as a terrible omen. So Manuel ordered the Roman figure to be, uh, to be restored and the Hungarian one to be cast down, so attempting to reverse the outcome of the war through a symbolic transposition. So the forum was at this point, this is in the 12th century, being imagined as a space of symbolic avatars, kind of with statues linked to their uh, real world counterparts through invisible channels of power. Now, I think we should pause here and maybe go back to the beginning. So I've jumped to the 13th century already, which in Byzantine terms is the deep end of the pool. Um, and I've thrown you in there without much background or context. So it's time to back up and explain how it happened that the gods had retired from Olympus to Constantinople um, and took on these minor subordinate roles. Now, it turns out actually, when we look at the beginning of that story, I believe that the gods were much more like honored guests in the new imperial city when it was created. And they still bore the insignia and dignity of their ancient majesty. So the power was still there. They were not all second-rate haunts or players from the minor leagues, at least not originally. Constantinople was built on the site of the ancient city of Byzantium on the Bosporus. It was founded and inaugurated by the Emperor Constantine in the year 330 AD, and it was intended as a kind of branch office of Rome in the East. It was from the start understood to be a new Rome, and this was part of its nomenclature and legal status. The city's architecture alluded to the old capital in many ways, uh, such as through its palace adjacent to the Hippodrome. Here's the palace area, most of the palaces lost to us, the Hippodrome including imperial forums, columns with colossal statues of emperors, domed buildings, obelisks, and colonnaded boulevards. This idea of building a capital to imitate Rome should perhaps not be foreign to residents of this city, um, <laughs> as Washington is also a new Rome by design and monumentality. And I use this comparison to explain Constantinople to students in Ohio um, who have not been to Constantinople um, the parallels are pretty striking, and, oops, and they are due to a common genealogy of monumental forms that um, is traced back to Rome. In a sense, we might say that uh, Washington and Constantinople are sister cities in, being, um, in having this kind of relationship from, uh, uh, to Rome. When you wanted to build an imperial capital, this was the language of symbolic uh, power. Um, and there are many other types of comparisons. Uh, but if you just walk around, especially here where we are, it's, it's quite striking. Though I, I, I think that, that Washington is based on Rome via Paris. Um, so there might be another connection there uh, back when these things were, oh, actually. Um, I can get away with this comparison, of course, because my students haven't seen Washington either. Uh, <laughs> anyway, now, being Rome was about more than, more than just monumentality. It had cosmic implications. So Rome was not merely prosaically the capital of the empire. It was also, 
its summit and summation. So it was the highest peak of the world in terms of status, power, and even ontology. So Rome received into itself all of the good things from all over the world and kind of became a microcosm, a world city or cosmopolis. Its monuments alluded not only to Rome's conquest of the entire world, but its appropriation of their histories, cults, and cultures. In the fourth century, the historian Ammianus called Rome a templum toti, a mundi totius, a temple of the entire world. And a 10th century Byzantine classical dictionary, the Suda, called Rome the epitome of the whole world. Now, it had taken old Rome centuries to accumulate the monumental and ideological equipment to support these grand claims. By contrast, Constantinople inherited this position directly from its Western counterpart on the Tiber and was physically designed from the start to emulate it monumentally. Now, at this point, we have to remember one thing. In, in 330, when Constantinople was founded, there was yet no Christian language or Christian idiom of imperial power. This was still being formed. Sometimes today, Constantinople, as the foundation uh, of the Emperor Constantine, is talked about as a Christian capital for what would become a Christian empire. But I think that at the moment of its foundation, this thought was probably an anachronism that we project back. I don't think the idea of a Christian capital was within anyone's reach at that time. Constantinople was fundamentally a Roman imperial capital. And the chief way of showcasing its cosmic importance, specifically the cosmic importance of the emperor who built it, was through Greek mythology. And this required bringing in a lot of statues. <coughs> By the way, if I can intrude another comparison to Washington, <laughs> it seems appropriate, right? <clears throat> so if you were to choose a focal point for representing a cosmic message monumentally, it would be the eye of the rotunda of the capital, which dominates the city's topography. So lo and behold, that is exactly what we have, the apotheosis of Washington, no less, expressed in the symbolic language of the Greek gods, here done in fresco. Okay. In Constantinople, it was mostly done through bronzes, and specifically in the form of Constantine. Uh, initially, there were other spaces that uh, were built to um, convey similar or the same message. Um, now, these bronzes were not newly made. Uh, they were appropriated and repurposed. We actually know from our sources that imperial agents were sent out to collect these pieces, sometimes picking out the best of the best. Um, or rather, they picked out the exact pieces that tied together the, ens the ensembles of new architectural meaning that were intended for the Eastern capital. Uh, some locals in the cities around the Aegean complained about the theft of their artwork. Uh, the wicked wit of St. Jerome uh, expressed this nicely in his chronicle. He added a notice that Constantinople was adorned with the nudity, the nuditas, of all other cities. Um, this refers simultaneously to the nude statues, but also to the stripping bare of the cities from which they were taken. Um, but after all, this is how Rome itself had become Rome, right? The museum of the world by taking what had belonged to others and appropriating it. So collections were established in Constantinople that were to die for. Uh, we know of over 80 statues with a mostly Trojan theme in the Zeuxippus Baths. This is between the palace and the Hippodrome. The Hippodrome itself sported a splendid collection of its own. Uh, in addition to the obelisks, uh, one from Egypt, the, the spina, the uh, spine of the Hippodrome there. Um, 
hosted an array of bronze gods, emperors, monsters, and animals. And the only one that survives is the base of the serpent column, uh, the three entwined snakes. The, the, this tripod base had been dedicated outside the temple of Apollo at Delphi. This is by the allied Greeks who defeated the Persians at Plataea in 479 BC. If you go upstairs to the exhibition, you can see a very large um, reconstruction, a painting of Delphi. And if you look directly to the um, right of the Temple of Apollo, which is sort of up toward the right, um, you will see that, or a, a version of that, a sort of stumpier version of it. But um, this is the um, reconstruction of, of the Delphic tripod or serpent column. And it was brought to, Constantine, to Constantinople by Constantine uh, for two reasons, I believe. First, it reinforced his own connection to the sun god, who was a very important part of that emperor's image and propaganda, as we will see. And second, because Constantine was about to embark on a campaign against the Persians before he died. Apollo was here being enlisted to boost the emperor's image. But over the centuries, the Delphic column also faded into one of those sea-list powers, with specifically the power of keeping it safe from snakes. No great imagination needed there. Um, and it even kept its heads until one night in 1700, they broke off and fell. Um, some have tried to blame uh, the Polish embassy that was housed across the street, um, <laughs> who drank a lot. And anyway, um, one of the three heads was sub subsequently found, um, and you can see it in the uh, Istanbul Archaeological Museum. It's a wonderful museum, um, by the way. Uh, another set of bronzes from the Hippodrome survives, but um, no longer there. Uh, these are the magnificent horses of San Marco, which were taken away as loot by the Venetians after they sacked the city in 1204. They are housed today in their cathedral, the Venetians' cathedral in Venice, with copies now placed outside. These horses have had quite a history in modern times as well. Napoleon took them, and they were returned in 1815. In the Hippodrome of Constantinople, they stood uh, on a tower that rose above the starting gates. The historian Koniatis, I mentioned earlier, he, um, he describes their, quote, somewhat curved necks as if they were eyeing each other during a race. He mentions them in the context of an official state visit by the Seljuk uh, uh, Sultan of Rum. Um, the emperor, this is in the 12th century, again, this is in 1162, the emperor took the sultan to the hippodrome to watch the games. And at that time, there was an Arab in the city who announced that he would fly off of the tower. He had constructed a flying device, um, and he would jump off the tower and fly. Um, he was, uh, I'll quote Koniatis here. He was dressed in an extremely long, wide, white robe with uh, twisted strands that made ample folds. Think of like the bat cape or something. And it was his intention to unfurl this garment like the sails on the winds. All eyes turned on him, and the people chanted, jump, jump. <laughs> so many times he raised his arms, forming them into wings and beating the air as he poised for flight. When a fair and favorable wind arose, he flapped his arms like a bird and jumped off, but he plummeted to the ground. His life was snuffed out, his arms, legs, and all the bones in his body shattered. There's no connection to gods or anything, but I had to read that. <laughs> <laughs> this is tremendous stuff that you find in Byzantine sources when you're not looking for them. Um, a similar attempt, by the way, was made on the Eiffel Tower in 1912, 
with the same result. <laughs> you can see the video online. I'm not kidding, There's, it was taped. Probably the single most impressive collection of statuary in Constantinople was that in the Palace of Lausus that was near the Hippodrome. I mentioned this earlier as the retirement place of Olympian Zeus. In addition to Phidias's colossal statue of, of Zeus, Lausus somehow managed to acquire, and are there any curator, there must be lots of curators here, so listen to this and weep. The Aphrodite, Aphrodite of Cnidos by Praxitelis, the Athena of Lindos, and the Hera of Samos. What we wouldn't give for a few minutes in that hall. And here's the heartbreaking part of it. It all burned up in a fire that tore through this part of the city in 475. The collection survived for all of 50 years. Today there's instead <laughs> the, the home of the gods. It's right there. Okay. Um, by the way, so at the entrance to the exhibition upstairs, there is a, a sign that talks about how, how badly preserved ancient bronzes are. And one of the reasons that we can add to that discussion there, to the list, is that some of the best pieces were taken to Constantinople where they were destroyed by fires, not deliberately. Uh, the, 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 these amazing collections. Uh, and uh, so we've lost, we've lost some of the best pieces. Um, it, it, this is in part also why, um, oh, I don't want to digress. Okay. Now, Lausus himself, this is a eunuch chamberlain of the imperial palace, is an interesting figure in another way, too. In addition to his assemblage of the Olympian gods, which shows really exquisite taste and a knowledge of art history, Lausus was the dedicatee of one of the most important works on ascetic Christian monasticism in Egypt. This is the Lausiac history written by one Palladius, and it's named after his patron. And this work is all about the rejection of the world um, and feats of self-denial performed by monks in the desert. So Christian faith and respect for ascetic values could go hand in hand with the um, kind of ascetic sensibilities reflected in Lausus's palace collection. This is worth noting because it was not at all obvious that this combination would be possible. Right, so not all Christians were cool with having Zeus next door. And even Palladius, in his letter dedicating the work to Lausus, put in a rather provocative dig against, and I quote, all men who gape after vain things and build edifices with stone from which they get no joy. It's a strange thing to say to a person who built this. And there were many Christian leaders out in the provinces who believed it was their sacred duty to destroy as many of the offensive statues of these <coughs> demonic gods as they possibly could. So we should not deny that a lot was destroyed during such fits of religious violence. This, this happened. But Christian opinion was not monolithic. The emperors, for example, did not really go in for holy vandalism. Now, they could look the other way. In fact, I think one of the chief job requirements for being a Roman emperor was the ability to look the other way. <laughs> but if asked, they generally did not condone such practices. So while the laws from the fourth and fifth centuries are quite violent when it comes to the suppression of paganism itself, they generally tend to favor the preservation of temples and their artwork. So a law issued in 382 by Theodosius I decreed, for example, that a specific temple in an eastern province 
this temple was the, important, uh, the center of an important festival and contained images, should be preserved so long as pagan worship was excluded. And the art should be preserved, and I quote, because of the value of art rather than divinity. So they're just kind of being redefined as works of art rather than having a sacred purpose. And this law was included in the Theodosian Code of the early fifth century, empowering uh, other local authorities to make similar decisions. Uh, laws by Theodosius' sons likewise prohibited the destruction of monuments and temples that were not being used for illicit pagan uh, worship. And thus, by invoking a sort of secular concept of art, these laws normalized and preserved what had previously been sacred, and moreover, in a purely Christian context. Uh, so this may very well have been the attitude of Lausus, who was a chamberlain of Theodosius II. He was both a patron of ascetic writers and the host of Zeus, Athena, Aphrodite, and Hera. And in the second half of this presentation, I would like to focus on Constantine specifically and some of the bronzes that he brought to his city. I've already mentioned one of these bronzes, uh, namely the serpent column, which he placed in the spine of the Hippodrome. The others I would like to talk about were placed in his forum. And I've already mentioned the large Athena there, uh, which was destroyed by the people of the city in 1203 for the crime of encouraging the Crusaders. Now, uh, a word about Constantine. Uh, when talking about Constantine, um, it's very easy to get caught up in the question of his religion and his religious belief. Uh, specifically the nature and authenticity of his Christianity. Uh, this was a problem already in one of our earlier sources. This is Eusebius, the Bishop of Caesarea in Palestine, who was Constantine's unofficial biographer. And he wanted to depict Constantine as a true Christian according to his own uh, interpretation of Christianity. This, of course, affected the way in which he talked about Constantine's uh, bringing of the statues to the city, because Eusebius's version of Christianity had no place for nude bronzes. And the bishop claimed, therefore, that the emperor brought all of the statues to Constantinople in order to put them on public display and expose them to public ridicule so that everyone can see just how silly pagan religion is. Okay, this is pure spin. It, this could not possibly have been Constantine's intention. Besides, most of these statues were already on public display. That was the whole point of having them. And as you will see, it required that Eusebius remain completely silent about the most visible and public monument of Constantine's city. So, so personally, I don't think that Constantine's religion as such is within our reach. Uh, all we have are different images of him that he or those associated with him put into circulation. Constantine solicited the act of support of many groups in the empire, and he created images of himself that would appeal to them. As a result, we have both pagan and Christian images of Constantine. And whereas modern historians have tended to be obsessed with the question of his religion, he often had other more pressing concerns. Specifically, he had to legitimate himself and his dynasty in the face of a rival set of emperors who had their own dynasties uh, to maintain and, and legitimate. Constantinople was designed first and foremost to promote the image of Constantine in the immediate aftermath of his defeat in 324 of Licinius. Licinius is the last surviving member of a series of emperors we collectively call the Tetrarchy. 
Um, so Constantinople was a new Rome that was designed to project the power of Constantine in the east in the guise of a new Augustus. Uh, so let's look uh, quickly at the form of Constantine. Um, so first, very briefly, I'm using uh, two sets of images here uh, created um, for, with both scholarly and artistic intentions. Um, the uh, wonderful images from the Byzantium 1200 site um, created by Taifun Oner um, using both architectural and archaeological evidence. Um, they're great for uh, teaching and for illustrating spaces. Um, they're also a set of more artistic representations by um, an artist, Antoine Elbert. Um, and uh, we, we don't have to take you know, every aspect of these images as literal truth. They're just very useful for helping to organize our imagination about the um, objects in these spaces. The, the problem with these spaces in the form of Constantine um, that's preoccupied me is that the different elements are, have so far been discussed separately. So what survives archaeologically is, described, is discussed by one set of scholars. Um, materials that we know uh, only from texts are discussed by other scholars, art historians, political historians, all uh, focus on the one aspect of, the, of a space, such as the form of Constantine, that interests them. And um, I have yet to come across a sort of more holistic reading of these spaces. And this is what I'm trying to do. And I'm trying to do it by pulling together all of these sources, uh, regardless of the material um, in, in which they survive, with textual, archaeological, whatever, also visiting them um, and just sort of standing around there looking, <laughs> looking around, trying to imagine specifically how all of these objects interacted with each other uh, given their mythological uh, meaning. And so I'm going to propose that the form of Constantine was designed to project symbolically an architectural vision of a cosmology and history centered uh, on the god emperor Helios Constantine. Now, all of its elements actually uh, tie in with aspects of Constantinian propaganda that we know from other media that emanated from his court, such as coins and texts and so forth. So the, the forum was a space structured to promote a vision of a Constantinian cosmos, a cosmos in which Constantine stood at the center in a quasi-divine capacity. So the main elements uh, are, so here's the main boulevard of Constantinople, the Messi Odos. Um, it is a circular or oval uh, forum with a two-storied colonnade running around it. Um, in the center is the column of Constantine. The, the column is the only part of this that survives, by the way. Uh, even the base is encased in a much later Ottoman um, uh, addition. We can't see it. Uh, on the north side here was a senate house with a dome. And on the south side was a nymphaeum, like a fountain. And there were statues all around. We don't know exactly where most of them were situated. Uh, by the nymphaeum here on the south end, there was a series of columns with uh, hippocamps or sirens on them, kind of an like, aquatic theme. Okay, so I'll, I'll talk about these uh, elements in, uh, in turn. So the centerpiece and focal point of the forum was a porphyry column, about 37 meters tall, which still survives, and the colossal statue of Constantine slash Apollo slash Helios um, that stood atop it. Our sources call the statue all three things in various combinations. And the statue was of gilded bronze with a radiant crown bearing seven rays. Now, there, there are different ways of uh, reconstructing it uh, from the descriptions that we have. The likeliest reconstruction is by Jonathan Bartle, 
uh, which uh, the image that you see here is based on it. And he concludes it was probably an ancient statue or Hellenistic statue of Apollo that was reworked to bear the emperor's image. It held a spear in its right hand and a globe in its left. Whatever its origin, it certainly conveyed divine solar claims on behalf of Constantine to viewers in the 330s. Constantine had long since tied his fortunes and image closely to Apollo slash Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun. Um, this had begun around 310 when Constantine was emperor in Gaul, and it was at that point that he broke from the tetrarchy uh, before he was associated with it. He was the son of one of the former tetrarchs, and he broke with the tetrarchy. The tetrarchy had taken as their, um, as their divine patrons uh, Jupiter and Hercules, and to differentiate himself from them, Constantine took on the sun god as his patron. So solar, you'll see the difference here in a moment. Solar rhetoric and imagery was therefore for Constantine a, a political strategy of distinction, right? So um, he had begun his career within the system of the Tetrarchy, but then he broke from it when he started killing them. Um, and he, <laughs> he created his own brand, basically. What, what you're seeing here basically is a, a, an imperial branding exercise. So rather than the, the rough military image of the Tetrarchy that you see here, and even Constantine began with something very similar, um, Constantine now goes back to earlier models, specifically the Apollo imagery of Augustus himself. He issued coins and medallions that showed him as a kind of double of the sun god, who here you can see in the background, he wears a, a radiate crown back there. So as Noel Lenski has written about the colossal forum statue, no observer could escape the visual parallel with the standard image of Sol Invictus, Constantine's favorite, favored pagan god from 310 onward. Um, and I will add that um, Constantine almost certainly believed that his association with the sun god and his profession of Christianity or support for the Christian churches were perfectly compatible. There doesn't seem, you know, a, a bishop might think what he will about that, but Constantine seems to have believed that all of this was perfectly fine together. Now, moreover, in some sources, the bronze colossus is said to have come from Troy. This was doubly appropriate, for Apollo was both the god of the sun and also in Homer's Iliad is, the, is a patron god of Troy. And Troy is also the city from which the Romans, as a whole, uh, claim to be descended. Um, in fact, by the early fifth century, if not earlier, stories were already circulating about how Constantine had originally decided to found his new capital at the site of Troy, and had had a vision and changed his mind and moved to Byzantium. Constantine also tended to have visions whenever there was a change in policy. He had lots and lots of visions. And when he, Constantine has a, vi a vision, you know something's about to shift in, in his uh, either imagery um, or policies. So the design of the forum, um, if the statue was brought from there, reinforced the symbolic link to Troy, but not only through the statue of Helios, because many of the other statues that were in the forum also uh, alluded to um, Troy, uh, the history of Troy. Specifically, they included an Aphrodite and Athena, as I mentioned, but also a judgment of Paris, and also Thetis, the mother of Achilles. The Athena is the one that we saw destroyed in 1203. Now the Colossus also had lateral resonances. So with its famous counterpart in Rome, 
this was a colossus of Nero, apparently 30 meters tall, um, whose head had been altered after Nero's reign uh, to that of uh, the god Sol, the sun, with radiant crown. Uh, and in Rome, this statue stood you know, next to the Colosseum, which is where the Colosseum gets its name from. And it stood behind uh, Constantine's famous arch in Rome. Well, actually, Constantine's arch was put sort of in front of it. Um, there's a wonderful study of this by Elizabeth Marlowe, by the way, uh, which I recommend, about how this colossal statue um, uh, of Sol worked together with the arch to reinforce Constantine's solar associations. So these two colossal statues of Helios then established a very thick set of Constantinian connections. So if you're in the form of Constantine, uh, it points up to the sun, back to the Romans' Trojan past, sideways to elder Rome. And the form of Constantine is the nexus of these associations. The column on which the statue stood consists of several drums of porphyry marble. Now, this marble was used especially for imperial monuments. And even the color possibly reinforces Constantine Helios's solar attributes um, if the view was widespread that, and here I'm quoting a slightly earlier uh, imperial author, Philostratus, and he said that the color porphyry gains a pe peculiar beauty from the sun and is infused with the brilliancy of the sun's warmth. Sculpted laurel wreaths, as you can see here, um, they, uh, the, and these signified imperial victory wrap around the top of each column, uh, sorry, of each column drum. Uh, laurel wreaths were, of course, uh, closely associated with Apollo. Uh, the victors of the Pythian games at Delphi, so another Delphic association, were presented with laurel wreaths. And the Pythia uh, herself, she held laurel wreaths as she sought the god's mantic inspiration. In a 310 Latin oration praising Constantine, the speaker says that when the emperor personally encountered Apollo in Gaul, it's another one of Constantine's visions, Apollo appeared to him, and uh, the god was accompanied by victory, and they gave him laurel wreaths, each of which presaged 30 years of rule. And I've already mentioned the Delphic tripod that he moved from Delphi uh, to the Hippodrome. Uh, this, the form provides a kind of explanation for, um, uh, for, for a while, all of this, this sort of thick set of uh, uh, allusions to Apollo. Um, here's a, an artist's rendition of the form of Constantine. Um, again, the, I don't think that most of this here is historical. Um, it's sort of like, I don't know, Oxford with tile roofs or something. But um, <laughs> we, we just need to focus only on the, on the relevant parts. I think also the, the bronze statue was probably much bigger than this. Um, and uh, Anyway, more about that in a moment. So the, the, the statue of Constantine on top of the column was actually known to the people of Constantinople as Anthelios, uh, which in Greek means opposite the sun or facing the sun. Now, we know this name from later sources, but they imply that it had been called that since the days of Constantine himself. And there's some evidence for this. Um, now, the name makes sense because the statue faced east. Until the reign of Justinian, in fact, uh, it was the highest point in the city. So that, so think about this, when the sun rose in the east, the statue of Constantine on top of the column was the very first thing that its rays would strike. Now, as this was a colossal bronze statue that was, it was gilded, it would have shone brilliantly in the morning skyline over the city, like a second sun. 
And this effect would have been especially striking for anyone um, looking from the east, so from the palace. Now we can postulate a homology, what the sun was to the cosmos, Anthelios Constantine was to New Rome, specifically to the mini-universe of the Forum. There's a sixth century historian, Eusebius, who wrote that in the Forum statue, quote, we see Constantine shining forth over the citizens like the sun. And this vision was echoed by other writers as well. So even Eusebius, who wrote about Constantine in a way that avoided explicit pagan connotations, and he never mentions the statue, which would have been the most visible Constantinian representation in the city. But he mentions another. He says, just as the sun rises and spreads its beams over all, so also Constantine shone forth with the rising sun from the imperial palace and shed upon all who came before him the sunbeams of his own generous goodness. Now, the circular shape of the forum also provoked cosmic commentary in Byzantium. Uh, imperial forums are usually rectangular, so this distinctive shape resonated on multiple cosmic levels. Uh, here, unfortunately, we have only later evidence, uh, 10th century uh, and after. I haven't been able to find anything earlier. Uh, one writer um, in 10th century, he imagined the shining white columns that, uh, of the encircling colonnade as a chorus of stars that crowned the forum in a circular row around the column, kind of a heliocentric astral map of the heavens. And so this author calls the forum a catastral forum. Another author claimed that the circle imitated Okeanos. Uh, this is the body of water that encircled the world. Either way, this, the, the symbolism was always sort of cosmic on this level. The oceanic reading was probably reinforced by the monuments um, at, at the southern end of the forum, down here, uh, which, uh, as I said, included a nymphaeum, a fountain, statues of sea creatures such as dolphins, one of which we have found, and 12 sirens, or hippocamps, on separate columns. This effectively extended the reach of Constantine's dominion to the sea. But for a, a specific purpose, I think, it alluded to the prominent naval aspect um, of his recent defeat of Licinius, his rival emperor. It was very rare for late Roman wars to feature naval action, but this one did. Uh, it was a very prominent uh, part of the war. And I think that the uh, forum architecture alluded to it in this way. Uh, that victory over Licinius was, by the way, what all of these triumphal motifs uh, were designed to celebrate. But here also, Constantine was imitating Augustus. Uh, so Augustus's imagery and propaganda um, in multiple media had a prominent aquatic theme, uh, including the hippocamps. And in part, this is because Augustus's concern was to celebrate the defeat of Cleopatra and Mark Antony at the naval battle of Actium. The form of Constantine was thus a vision of the Constantinian cosmos, uh, of the sun and the sea, um, and also of Roman history, both ancient, Troy, Actium, and recent, the defeat of Licinius. In the northern sector of the forum, there stood a senate house. It is entirely gone today. Now, from later texts, we know that it had a statue of Artemis in the porch, kind of interesting. But more importantly, it had these massive bronze doors that had been taken from the famous temple of Artemis at Ephesus. This is interesting because it establishes a symbolic, on a symbolic level, a relationship of Apollo and Artemis, 
or sun and moon between Constantine and the Senate. The polarities of Apollo, Diana, and sun, moon were also prominent in Augustan imagery. And again, also, they appear on the Arch of Constantine in Rome. So they are on either side uh, at the top, sort of, they, uh, they're creating a kind of, the sun-moon pair creates a cosmic setting for the actions of Constantine uh, depicted on the arch. Uh, Linda Safran has written about this very interesting uh, uh, study. So the symbolic cosmology of the forum, it relied heavily on the figural language of ancient mythology. Constantine was using pagan art to reconstruct an image for his reign out of the building blocks of myth and ancient symbolism using a great deal of uh, ancient bronze. Uh, now, this is not about belief, right? I'm not going there. This is a kind of red herring. It is a syntax of associative meaning whose language was mythological. And there's more. It gets kind of more interesting. Those doors of the Senate House that I mentioned, the ones from the Temple of Artemis, um, we have a couple of descriptions of them, uh, one very long. Uh, apparently, they had uh, a terrifying bronze relief on them of the Gigantomachy, the defeat of the giants by the gods. We have a, a detailed description from a 10th century poet, uh, Constantine of Rhodes, and some pictorial confirmation possibly from the 4th century already. And so we can be reasonably certain that it evoked scenes like these. Uh, this is from relief uh, from Antalya. Uh, except it was, these were huge bronze doors, like uh, 30 feet tall. So why was this here, the doors of the Senate House? Well, it was the defeat of the giants that inaugurated the final rule of the gods and the coming of order to the cosmos, the very order represented by the statue of Constantine Helios and the forum around it. So placed on the periphery of the forum circuit, the gigantomachy is a liminal reminder of the struggle out of which order emerged and also a chapter in the cosmic history that led to the reign of Constantine. In fact, it may have very well evoked specific crisis points within that very reign. The serpent-legged giants were described by Constantine of Rhodes. This is a 10th century poet, and this is how he described them. Their tongues flickering like serpents, roaring terribly, glowering grimly, and emitting fire from their eyes. So here, finally, we find the gods in all their materiality, glory, and majesty. They're not mere abstractions or lawn ornaments, right? This is when Zeus burned the giants with his lightning, when Hercules shot them with his bow, when Athena dropped Sicily on them. <laughs> we have traveled back to the beginning of the divine order and the defeat of primordial evil. For Constantine specifically, these images evoked the succession of enemies whom he defeated in his ascent to power. These are the hard men of the Tetrarchy, men like Maximian, Maxentius, and most recently, Licinius. Interestingly, they are depicted in precisely such monstrous terms in Constantine's own propaganda. In his laws, he calls Licinius a dragon. According to Eusebius, after his defeat, the following image was placed above the entrance to Constantine's palace. Constantine, surrounded by his sons, piercing a dragon at his feet. And <clears throat> the dragon, of course, represents Licinius and is being thrust down into the depths of the sea. Here, then, were this very same symbolic building blocks of the forum, but on display in front of the palace at this time. And Constantine even issued a coin showing his military standards skewering a serpent. 
Therefore, Constantine's designers built a symbolic universe where the contrast of paganism and Christianity had not fully sharpened. The victory of the gods over the giants could still refer to the triumph of good over evil and order over chaos and tyranny in some of Constantine over Licinius, and this could be used by an emperor who was also actively sponsoring the church. Now, in later centuries, within a couple centuries, pagans would be using the giants, right, as an image of the evil Christians. So these are the enemies of the gods, and they were referring to Christians that way through the coded language of mythology. But we're not there yet. So the gods in bronze are here fully complicit in the making of the new imperial order. So I will, I will draw one conclusion and close with an epilogue. So what can we say about Constantine's designers? We, we actually don't know anything about them uh, directly. But we can infer that they were capable of making monumental spaces with a coherent syntax of symbolic forms drawn from Greek mythology and Roman history. To construct these monumental imperial texts, spaces, they were allowed to select artistic materials from the eastern cities and temples, and they carefully constructed new constellations of meaning from them. These materialized Constantinople's claim to be new Rome, and it endowed it with a cosmic significance uh, through mythological references. Now imagine being an architect with a classical education and charged by an emperor to create a new, new city, a new capital, that would encapsulate and perfect these imperial ideals. And you were, moreover, authorized for this purpose to draw on the accumulated art and statuary of the Aegean region. That's what an amazing assignment. But also, what a loss, right? It's all gone, except for the serpent column, the horses at St. Marco. What happened to the Colossus of, of Constantine? So this forum space was ravaged by fires and earthquakes, one of which caused the spear to fall and embed itself in the forum. And the globe also fell, I think, twice. Riots caused more fires, especially the Nika riots in 532. A lightning bolt struck the column directly in 1079. And a ferocious gale finally toppled the statue in 1106. A gale. Killing people, it fell then. Squished them. The head of the, of, the, of the statue seems to have ended up in the palace. Um, it kind of kept as a curiosity. Um, and the Emperor Manuel Comnenus replaced it on, uh, on top of the column with a huge uh, cross. But before the statue fell, the column of Apollo Constantine had become a focal point of the most Christian city's identity. So I'll give a striking illustration. The 10th century life of St. Andrew the Fool contains a mini version of the apocalypse and the end of the world. It presents an image of the city completely flooded over at the end of times, accepting only the tip of the column of Constantine. The survivors would tie their boats to it and lament the passing of their once great Babylon. Thank you. This has been the National Gallery of Art Podcast. 